you know, the last verse of that song that we just sang uh, had these words in it. When Christ shall come and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. And probably, almost unconsciously, along with that, is, or when we sing a song like that, there is that idea that home is somewhere, is heaven, and it is somewhere away from where we are today. And this is not an isolated feature of the songs that we sing. A very well-known children's song that we sing at Christmas time, Away in a Manger, has these words in it. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. So again, heaven is associated with there as opposed to here. And in uh, probably one of the best known of those songs that were called the, the, the spirituals that uh, Afro-American slaves would sing during their time of hardships down south of the border, uh, thinking about heaven. Is this well-known song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up out there somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. So not only does this again build on that idea or convey the idea that, that heaven is still somewhere out there beyond the blue, kind of con suggesting it's beyond even this blue sky that we can see. And then along with that is the emphasis that this world is not my home, is kind of temporary and I'm just passing through. Now these kind of ideas sit fairly well and comfortably with those of us who may have grown up with a Christian background or a Christian ethos in our life. But we don't pause to think of what impact a statement like this, that this world is not my home, would have or come across to a person who's not a follower of Christ, who, who's living in an active, engaged lifestyle in this world, making meaningful contribution. It would probably come across as a denial of the value of, of, of arts and science and culture of all kinds. <clears throat> and actually, not only that, it even sets us up for a lot of hypocrisy. Because even while we are saying this world is not my home, we're actually very much at home in this world. As I said last week, a lot of us who believe in heaven don't want to go there. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some dimensions of being at home in this world that are both unwise and short-sighted. But there is one fundamental perspective that we really do need correction on and that is this idea of what I have called the divorce of heaven and earth. That heaven is somewhere out there and earth is just kind of a temporary physical thing that is headed for destruction. It goes hand in hand with that view of the bodies that I saw that we talked about last week. That our bodies are but temporary housings for the real me which is the soul and that one day when I go to heaven it will be my soul that will be with God and this, this temporary housing can be discarded with. And just like last week we carefully dismantled that view from, by looking at what the scripture says, I want to do the same thing today. Walk us through some critical scriptures and some perspectives to correct this understanding of, of, of heaven as something divorced from earth and earth's corporeal physical nature as something that is temporary and having no lasting purposes in God at all. But before I do that, for the benefit of those who weren't here last week, and by the way, I have a quick refresher for those of us who were, let me uh, review again what we learned last week in our first message in this series on heaven. We began by looking at the fact that all of us seek for happiness, and that the primary engine for happiness that drives this thing called happiness is hope. That when hope abounds, we are happy. When hope comes crashing to the ground, we are unhappy. 
We saw that life was basically an undulating series from the peaks of hope to the valleys of hopelessness. We learned that this was actually something that God himself has built into our lives to, to awaken us to the fact that we are yearning for something much more. And the Bible, we looked at one particular verse in the Bible that speaks about the living hope. That we are, these are all, this unsatisfied longing on earth is a clue that there is a living hope that is waiting for us. And that living hope is tied to something that Peter called an imperishable inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. And the way we are going to experience that living hope is by getting a hold of this imperishable inheritance. And then we looked at one particular dimension of this imperishable inheritance, which is none other than our resurrected physical bodies. And I encourage you to how we might use our sanctified imaginations. We saw by looking at the resurrected body of Jesus, which is, a, which is um, in a sense, if you will, a clue as to what our bodies are going to be like when they are resurrected in heaven. That they are both much like these present bodies, just like Jesus was, and yet far more unimaginably glorious. And we kind of looked at two areas, in the areas of beauty, of heightened physical sensitivities, and a radiant community as three examples of what this incredibly glorious physical existence might look like on heaven. And that was one dimension of that imperishable inheritance. Then we closed our study last week by talking about how we actually become inheritors to this inheritance. How do we enter into this? How do we know that we can be part of the resurrected life of Jesus. And that is by union with Christ in his death, that the living hope comes through a new birth. And the new birth, in essence, was an identification with Christ in his death, understanding why he died for us. He died for our sins. He died to, for, to, receive, for, to provide forgiveness for our sins, because we've lived a life of independence of God. And that union with Christ in his death is what guarantees us union with Christ in his resurrection and a participation in this glorious, physical, resurrected inheritance that is ours. So today we want to focus on the parallel development of this physical earth and how the two link together. The opening chapters of the Bible describe God's creation of the universe and of the heavens and the earth. And after each stage of that creation, we will read that God saw that it was good. And then as the apex of his creation, he created human beings. And the Bible says he created human beings in his own image. Uh, they, they reflected or, or, or had in them the, the rational and the moral and the personal and the volitional aspects of God. Which equipped them or set them apart to uniquely function as God's vice regents. And so he told them to rule and to subdue this creation. Now ruling and subduing does not mean ecologically irresponsible living. Uh, often people who are much more sensitive to the environment will often accuse Christians and focus on Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as, as, a, as a reason for the rape of the environment. But that's a misunderstanding of, the, of what theologians call the cultural mandate. Those words to rule and to subdue means to use our God-given faculties to understand creation and then to harness that creation for the benefit of humanity, for the blessing of all creation and for the glory of God. And after God had created man and woman in his image and given them this mandate to rule and subdue the earth on his behalf, for his glory and for the benefit of all creation, he called it very good. And there is no indication in the rest of the Bible that God ever changed his mind on that project. Project Earth, as Frank Buchanan likes to call it, 
has always been the ruling of earth by humans created in the image of God for the benefit of all creation and for the glory of God. Now, of course, as you continue reading the stories in the book of Genesis, you'll find very quickly that our first forefathers, rather than use their faculties to exercise this powerful mandate to act as God's vice regents, instead use their free will to assert the independence of God by choosing to voluntarily disobey the one concrete commandment that God gave them, which in fact was to certify the moral nature of this whole enterprise. And the Bible calls that act of independence sin. All the various individual sins really come out from that fundamental sin of independence and autonomy. Now one of the consequences of this was also not only internal alienation of human beings, an alienation from God, an alienation from one another, but also an alienation from nature. Nature, the earth, was cursed as a consequence of human rebellion. And the earth begins to bring forth thorns and thistles. And the vocational call, the human's work on this earth of ruling and subduing was now no longer an unmixed delight, but was guaranteed to bring forth sweat and tears and pain and all kinds of alienation. In fact, sin began to develop so rapidly as you read the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and, and human rebellion against God and violence towards one another became so extended that in the early chapters of Genesis we are told that God destroyed all of creation on the earth with the exception of eight people, a man named Noah, his three sons and their family. But the interesting thing as far as today's sermon is that God renewed the same commitment to this family and said you will now rule and subdue. Exactly the commandment he gave to Adam and to Eve. There is no more powerful statement than in the first nine chapters of the Bible that underline for us the fact that God's intentions for Project Earth have never changed. Not all of human sin changed that. The earth is still intended to be ruled for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God by human beings made in the image of God. And of course today, or thousands of years after that, we look around at this world and we see a pretty massive failure of that mandate. The environment is in chaos and large sections of humanity are in miserable condition. Earth has not been ruled for the glory of God and for the benefit of humanity by God's people created in God's image. But it will be because Jesus taught us to pray that. He said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. According to Jesus, the fundamental aim of all of our praying is for this project earth to be completed. That God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will on earth is the rule of earth by human beings made in the image of God for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God. God hasn't changed his mind. Jesus taught us to pray for it and it is going to happen. That sets the stage for what the Bible teaches about the new heavens and the new earth. What will happen? At three significant sections in, in uh, biblical history, we will find three of, these are three of many, many references. The prophet Isaiah was a prophet who came to the land of Israel about 800 years before Christ or almost 3,000 years before us and he spoke often about this subject. One example is from Isaiah, the 65th chapter, the 17th verse. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Speaking of the future. 800 years after that, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, writing a letter to a group of Christians who were scattered all over the Roman Empire, 
refers to this promise and says, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And then another one of Jesus' disciples, John, was given a revelation in, in very poetic, imaginary, imaginative terms, which we will come to in a minute, of what this would look like in Revelation 21, looking ahead to an undetermined time in the future. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God promised it, Jesus' disciples reminded us of it, and one of Jesus' disciples was given a vision of what the new heavens and the new earth would be like. Now there are some things that we need to observe right away. The main point for this is this. If God's intention for us was to take his followers away to a heaven out there, why bother creating a new earth? All that was needed was that new earth to be com- to the old earth to be completely destroyed. In fact, we wouldn't need a new heavens either. The old heavens would be good enough. If heaven was indeed some place out there somewhere, far away removed from this earth. The other thing to notice about this is that the word that is used, the adjective new to describe this heaven is exactly the same, has the same, same concept in the original language as when we talked last week about the new birth. The, uh, the Apostle Paul, another one of Jesus' followers, when he wrote to a, a group of Christians in Corinth, describing what happens when people become Christ followers. He said, old things are passed away, all things have become new. But that doesn't mean that when a person becomes a follower of Christ, who he, who he or she was just suddenly ceases to exist and some brand new being shows up. The day after we made a commitment to follow Jesus, we looked pretty much the same as we did in the mirror. Some of us may wish we looked different, but we looked the same. The, the physical body is the same, much of our temperament is the same, but there is something new. The new is radically new. It is that Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living within us. There's a whole new life called spiritual life within us. So this is a different kind of newness. It is not the newness that does away with the old completely. It is the new that comes by the restoration and the renewal of the old. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. Exactly the same thing is going to happen to the new heavens and the new earth. It will not be a complete destruction of the old, so something brand new will come out from it. It is a restoration, a remaking, a completion of an invasion of the new into the old, lifting the whole thing up to a new level of existence. Earth, my brothers and sisters, is not a doomed planet headed for destruction. It has a glorious future of renewal by an invasion of the same Spirit of God. And and by the way, there's something particularly appropriate to that because God's glory has been challenged most on earth. And so it is so fitting that the place where God's glory was most challenged is the place where God's glory is going to be most honored. That is why it says in the scriptures, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. So now let's take a little little bit of a sharper focus on that last of those three verses where the vision is amplified a little bit more. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. Now, Revelation, for those who may not be aware of it, is the last book in the Bible, and it, is, it, is, it belongs to that genre of literature that is called apocalyptic. And apocalypse is a Greek word that means revelation. It has to do with things that 
need to be shown to us. And so it is, it is couched in language that is heavily metaphorical, laden with symbols and allegories. That doesn't mean what it's talking about, that reality is not real. It is that it is represented allegorically, and so we need to interpret that carefully. And here we see two images that are given to us to describe what, this, what is going to make this earth new. The first thing is that it becomes the dwelling place of God. God comes to take up residence on earth. And, and, and the parallel with the early chapters of Genesis are critical. In, in the study guide, uh, I've given you a little exercise to look at the first three chapters of the Bible, which is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the last three chapters, Revelation 20, 21, 22. And you'll see some absolutely amazing parallels between them. But for the, what is pertinent to our study today in understanding heaven, go back to those early chapters. If you read it, you will find that, again, uh, God's communion with his creatures whom he created is described in some powerful metaphorical terms. Like, it talks about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day. The, it, it's a very beautiful image of intimacy. But the interesting thing is, it took place on earth, not in heaven. God didn't show up every evening at 4 o'clock and say, okay guys, time for communion, let's go to heaven. No, 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 it was this earth that he created that was a place of intimate communion between God and his creatures. And so in the consummation of all things, we see the same thing happening in its final intended form. Where all of earth becomes God's place. God has taken his dwelling place. The intimacy between his people and God will again be taking place on earth. So that was one of the hallmarks of a new earth. It will be invaded again by the manifest presence of God. And of course, the incarnation, when God became a man and lived in this world for 33 years as Jesus Christ, is a beautiful foreshadowing of this, where this earth truly was the dwelling place of God himself. For the Bible says in, in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt within him. And so once again, we see in the incarnation, the future breaking in upon the present, although it was only for 33 years. But, but the other thing that I want to talk about here is the metaphor of marriage. The new earth is spoken of as New Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was the place where Jesus lived and walked for 33 years. And she's spoken of as a bride coming for her bridegroom. Heaven is the bridegroom and earth is the bride in this picture. See, in sharp contrast to popular Christian fiction that sees the end of the ages as a divorce of heaven and earth, us going away someplace. We see in the consummation of all things the marriage of heaven and earth. Again, interesting, because the early first three chapters of the book of the, of the Bible talks about a marriage <laughs> of the first man with the first woman. And N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, uh, talks about the significance of this very well. He says, heaven and earth, it seems, are not, after all, poles apart. Nor are they simply different ways of looking at the same thing. No, they are different, radically different. But they are made for each other in the same way as male and female. And when they finally come together, that will be a cause for rejoicing in the same way that a wedding is. A creational sign that God's project is going forward, that opposite poles within creation are made for union, not competition. That love and not hate have the last word in the universe, that fruitfulness and not sterility is God's will for creation. 
Are you getting the parallel? Just like God created a man and a woman and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Unleashing a wave of creativity and fertility and, and, and all kinds of beauty that we see today experienced as, as various forms of culture on this earth. The marriage of heaven and earth will release another wave of creativity like we've never seen before. Populated by resurrected men and women who have those glorious bodies that we talked about last week. Jesus' prayer is finally answered. That kingdom come. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, finally earth will be ruled for the glory of God and for the benefit of humanity by gloriously resurrected men and women who are vice regents of God. And just as last week, I encourage you to use your sanctified imaginations to imagine what this resurrected bodies will look like. To get some shape for this imperishable inheritance that is waiting for us. I want you to do the same today. And I remember I told you last week, we're not capable of imagining something that has no continuity with this world. We can't imagine something that doesn't exist at all. But precisely because Jesus' resurrected body showed us both continuity and glory. We are able to use our present bodies as a starting point for imagining what these resurrected bodies may look like. And we looked at three areas. In the same way, because this new earth will not be totally discontinuous from the old earth, we can begin to take a look at some dimensions of earth today and imagine what that might look like when it is touched by heaven. Okay, so we are moving into that sanctified imagination phase of today's message. So um, this is no longer as authoritative as scripture, but it's just to give you an idea of how it, things might work. You see, we, we live in a three-dimensional world, okay? Space, spatially speaking. Well, we have length and we've got breadth and we've got height in there. Some of us may wish, may wish we had more or less of one of those dimensions, but uh, we're all there. We have those three dimensions in our lives. Well, actually, after Einstein, we know that we actually have four dimensions because length, breadth, and height are all moving through time. And we know that time is intimately connected to space as well, but we can leave that aside for today because... Hardly anybody understands all, all that stuff. But we, but we know it's true. But spatially speaking, we are three-dimensional creatures. And it is very, very difficult for us to understand, as three-dimensional creatures, anything that has an extra dimension. We can always understand something that is lower. We can understand flatness. We can understand a single line. We can understand a point. So we can understand zero, one, and two dimensions, but we, and, and three. But when we go beyond three, it's hard to understand it and experience. Now, mathematically, we can conceive of worlds that are multidimensional. And mathematicians spend all their time in those kinds of equations and stuff like that. But for us, experientially, we can't go beyond the maximum number of dimensions we actually have. So I was really hunting around for analogy. What might an additional dimension in the exist existence look like? Oh, this is the closest I could come to it. Uh, we made our first trip to Disney World when our kids were eight and five. We did not want to be driving kids who were less than five years old all the way to Florida. Anyway, at that time, this will date me, folks, but at that time, this would have been the early 80s, I think, sometime, uh, Michael Jackson was a big name in those days. And I think one of his, I, don't, I still don't know to this day whether it was a single hit item or whether it was a, a whole a, a concert or whatever. His name was associated with some musical thing called the Thriller. Anyway, at this, right? Okay. You laugh. That's all I know about it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, when we went to this place, there was this one of the exhibits was this Michael Jackson thriller for it was a 45-minute thing. It was a huge lineup. It was July. It was hot. But we got in there, and uh, they gave us these glasses to put on. Yeah. 
And, and you know, and there's this huge big screen, and like all screens, they're two-dimensional. All screens are two-dimensional. Now, when we see a movie, you say, well, no, but that's not two-dimensional. I can actually perceive depth. But the reason you can perceive depth in a movie is because you have binocular vision, and your brain extrapolates from your real-life experience, and you are able, because you have binocular vision, you are able to get a sense of depth. By the way, that's why if you lose one eye, you lose sense of depth perception. So it's still only 2D. It only has an appearance of 3D. Well, I tell you, when I put on those glasses, it was scary. All of a sudden, things were flying out of the screen at me, and I was physically ducking. Now, you never do that when you watch a two-dimensional screen, ever. There were birds, there were balls, there was fire, the musicians are all around me. You are plunged into a whole new world. And I said, oh, wow, that's what it's heaven's going to be like. Not because we put on glasses... But we have resurrected bodies with whole new heightened senses and a wholly renewed world with multiple dimensions to it. New modes of perceptions that will stagger our thinking. Something like that is awaiting us when we get to extra dimensions. By the way, this has very significant practical significance. You know, my mind went back to a lady many, many years ago in this congregation 95% of you probably won't know her because she was here only for a short time. But I remember her husband died suddenly and when I went to visit her, she was angry. And as we listened and we talked about it, the reason for that anger came out. She said, we had so many plans. We had so many plans to enjoy our retirement life together. And it was all gone. (laughs) And you know, we might be in that position. Some of you might be, if not exactly that. I have news for you. If both of you were followers of Christ, you ain't lost nothing. (laughs) Because there is waiting for you an amazing multidimensional new creation with bodies, resurrected bodies that have glorious heightened sensibilities for an experience of the two that, that can only weakly, weakly be imagined or illustrated by my experience of putting on those 3D glasses. This stuff is not dry as dust, irrelevant theology. This is practical, right down to giving us a living hope now and being able to handle issues. What kind of dreams did Charlene have for Andre and Alicia? If they were followers of Christ, we certainly heard that Alicia was, nothing has been lost. It's waiting for us. It's part of our imperishable inheritance. And I think we will also experience new modes of locomotion or movement. Okay? We're continuing with our exercise in sanctified imagination. You remember when Jesus was on earth, uh, not only was his body like ours in that he ate and he walked and he didn't have it, but he also did some things that our bodies cannot do. He, he suddenly appeared in one room with, through a closed door without the door ever having been opened. Well, how did that, what exactly goes on? Was that magic? Okay, I want you to follow me on this, okay? Uh, for the first, I want you to imagine a two-dimensional world. Okay, this is flat. There's no thick, there's no height to this. It's just length and breadth. And this is a surface. And there's a rope on that left side. And there's a big red line across the middle. And here's the task. The task is to move that rope from the left to the right. It's remaining in two dimensions. In other words, you can't leave the surface of the table. But you can't cross the red line. Actually, you can't do it. This is an impossible task. So long as you remain in two dimensions, there is no way you can move that two-dimensional rope from the left side of that red line to the right side of the red line without crossing the red line. But now, imagine what happens as soon as I allow you to add a third dimension. Now, imagine as soon as I allow you to add a third dimension. Okay, so you're going to twist the perspective a little bit. Look at the third dimension. 
You cannot drag that black cord to the right side without crossing the red line so long as you are restricted to the surface of the paper. But what if you add a third dimension? You just move the string up, go across, and come back down on the other side. That's easy for us to follow. But now backtrack a bit. Imagine a two-dimensional creature. Imagine a two-dimensional, a really flat insect, okay? That, that only had length and breadth to it, but no thickness. And imagine those things on the right-hand side waiting there, where there was no rope. And all of a sudden, a rope appears there. <laughs> to those creatures, it would seem like this rope disappeared and appeared. Actually, what happened was that rope didn't disappear and reappear. It simply relocated to another dimension that this flat creature had no awareness of and no ability to experience and reappeared on the other side. Now, now you understand what probably happened when Jesus moved through coarse doors. It wasn't magic. He just moved one dimension more away. And that dimension is heaven. And to creatures like you and me on earth, when he moves from a third to a fourth dimension, it appears like he's gone. And then it appears like he reappears again through the closed door. Actually, he easily negotiated that, I think, by moving to another dimension. I don't think he rearranged the, the particles of his body like all these science fiction movies tell us we can do. There was an additional dimension that was involved. I think we will experience those kinds of additional capacities for movement as well in this newly created earth. But there's probably even more and even more significant, and this time I'm coming back from sanctified imagination to scripture. So we're back on much surer ground at this point. Remember I told you last week that the ascension of Jesus is as important as the resurrection of Jesus when it comes to understanding heaven. And again, for those of you who are not familiar with the story of the Bible, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples on various occasions. Um, but then he finally left after 40 days. And his final departure from earth was experienced and described in the Bible in a very unique way. It is described of a person gradually levitating, gradually going out of sight and then completely going out of sight. Ah, Accounts like that have long been the, the source of mockery by unbelievers and skeptics. They say, well, who can believe all this nonsense? Well, actually, it isn't nonsense if you think in this matter of adding one more dimension. Let's go back to the string for a minute. What if instead of lifting the entire string together, I picked up one end of the string and started pulling it upward? Now imagine that flat little beetle sitting there. Looking at this rope. What would this rope look like? It would look like it was going up and disappearing as it went up. Because the part of it that was still flat, it would see in its own dimensions. The part of it that had gone to the new dimension, it wouldn't see anymore. And finally the whole rope would disappear. And if that beetle was writing a story, it would say, this rope ascended. The way this beetle would describe the movement of that rope out of its dimension would be in exactly the way Jesus' ascension has been described. What does that say to us? That when Jesus left earth and went to heaven, heaven was in some place connected to space and time out there. Which is why the cosmonauts have made stupid statements like I've been to heaven and don't see God there. The heavens they've been to is just space and time. That's our space. This is this earth, this dimension. But when Jesus ascended, he went to heaven. But heaven was another dimension. But here's the key. This is the most important point of all I want to grasp. How high off the table would I have to lift this rope before the beetle would stop seeing it? 5,000 miles? 
10,000 miles, a million miles. No, it would have to go an infinitesimal distance off the top. That's all. Just an infinitesimal move into the third dimension. It would be completely invisible to creatures who are limited to two dimensions. How far did Jesus have to go to go to heaven? It only had to be an infinitesimal distance away from earth. Heaven, I think, is not out there. I think it's right here. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, you have, now, you have now come to the city of angels, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Heaven is all around us. We don't need to think of it as something out there. Now mind you, the wedding of heaven and earth is far away, but the bridegroom isn't very far. <laughs> Last night on the way out, Jonathan and Cheryl Room, Sherry Room were telling me, you can use us as an illustration of that. Because they, they grew up in this church from the time, she said, from grade three on. They lived in different neighborhoods. They didn't see each other. Occasionally bumped into each other on Sundays. And the bridegroom, bride wasn't even aware that her bridegroom was there. Physically proximate, although the wedding was 20 odd years away. That's probably the way we need to understand heaven's relationship to earth. The wedding of heaven and earth, Revelation 21, we don't know when that's happening. But the bridegroom is not very far away. So close, so accessible to us. Wright puts it this way. He says, What we are encouraged to grasp precisely through the ascension is that God's space and ours, heaven and earth in other words, though very different, are not far away from one another. God's space and ours interlock and intersect in a whole variety of ways, even while they retain for the moment at least their separate and distinct identities and roles. One day they will be joined in quite a new way, open and visible to one another, married together forever. Of course, in Jesus, this was perfectly so. Heaven and earth intersected completely and totally in Jesus, and he was able to move in and out of those spheres without any trouble. One day, that intersection will be very clear and open to all of us. One last observation, and with that, we're finished. You and I, most of us Christians, and certainly those who don't follow Christ, are totally unaware of this amazing destiny that is waiting for earth and creatures. But you know what? Earth is not unaware of it. You and I are unaware of it, but earth isn't. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church uh, in a group of Christians in Rome, describes it this way. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope. This is the living hope of creation. Last week we talked about our living hope. This is the living hope of creation. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. When when the first human beings used their free will to rebel against God, not only did they experience these multiple phases of death in their life, the earth was cursed because of it. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now listen, if God's destiny for earth was destruction, childbirth is the worst analogy to use for that. But if his destiny for earth was a newness out of the old, preceded by anguish and trouble, then childbirth is the exact analogy to use for that. Because as we know, Childbirth is exactly that. Pain, difficulties, frustration, and then joy comes in the morning when the birth comes. So the tsunamis and hurricane ikes and whatnot are all the groanings of a creation that is still waiting for its destiny to be realized. And what is that destiny? To be ruled by God's creatures made in His image. Men and women in submission to God in their glorious resurrected bodies, ruling a new creation. 
And the person I think that has captured this better than anybody else is C.S. Lewis in his Narnia tale. This is what Narnia is all about. I mean, read the books again. If you haven't read them. If you've read them, read them again. If you read them to your children, if you haven't read them. I'm going to do it as a result of that. Because this is amazing. I mean, he, he understands this interlocking better than anybody else. That's why those kids could go through that cupboard in the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, spend several days and weeks in Narnia and come out and haven't even missed one second on earth here. That's the kind of mysterious interlocking between heaven and earth. And, and uh, Narnia under the control of the wicked witch is creation under the curse. Probably one of the most insightful sentences I've ever read, where it's always winter, but Christmas never comes. That's creation. And then what happened? What happened when Lucy and Simon and Edmund and others show up there? Do you remember the reaction of Beaver and Tumnus and others? That's the non-human creation gets all excited. What do they call them? Son of Adam, daughter of Eve. Because they know that their liberation is tied up when the son of Adam and the daughter of Eve take their full position as resurrected sons and daughters of God to rule the universe in subjection to God and for the glory of humanity. So that's what's awaiting for us. That's the second dimension of this amazing inheritance. Not only awesome resurrected bodies that are both continuous and gloriously discontinuous with our present bodies, but now to rule in an amazingly new earth that is both continuous and gloriously discontinuous with the present earth. Why would anybody not want to go there? Is it boring? <laughs> is it childish? Is it non-corporeal? All those reasons why people don't want to go to heaven? So how do we get in on this destiny? Same way. Same way we get in on that living hope through that new birth. Only it's meant it's spoken of in different words today. Creation, we are told, was subjected to God's curse. That curse was the declaration of death. Physical, psychological, social and above all spiritual death that is described in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And the Bible tells us that that curse was reversed in only one way. That when Jesus died on the cross, he became a curse. He became cursed in your place and my place. So that you and I could be freed from that curse. Find new life in Christ and take our rightful position in redeeming earth from its curse. And he writes, sums it up beautifully in his book, uh, The Hope. Surprised by hope. The power of the gospel of Jesus lies not in the offer of a new spirit. You're not being invited to some new spine-tingling private experience called spirituality. There are hundreds of purveyors of spirituality all over North America. And some of them go all the way to my country to find it. Or nor is it a religious experience, but in a powerful announcement that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil have been defeated, and that God's new world has already begun in Jesus' resurrection. We have an advanced invasion in Jesus' resurrection of not only our new resurrected bodies, but earth's new resurrected state. It means instantly that all people everywhere are gladly invited to come in to discover forgiveness for the past and an astonishing destiny in God's future. So if you, want to, if you want a part of that astonishing destiny in the future, you need forgiveness for the past. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I was thinking of my benediction for you last night. 
You know, I thought of so many things that we do that actually uh, surrender our imagination to the wrong things. We either stifle our ability to imagine at all, or, or we are so filled with imagining the wrong things that we have no room for a sanctified imagination. So my blessing for you, my blessing for you is that God will bless you with alertness to all of those things that are just robbing you of your power to imagine. Seize that power back from the enemy. And may you begin to set your imagination on those things that are above, where your life is hid with Christ in God. Go in Jesus' name.